Hello and welcome to Stuck in the 90s. We are your weekly nostalgia podcast dedicated to chronicling the years 1990 through 1999, one way or another. We are your hosts. My name might be Chris Elphick. And I have a sore throat. So sure do. Also, my name's Connor, but also, also, I do have a sore throat, so I apologize if I'm raspy. I feel like I am, and it's only going to get worse. It just adds a little bit of, like, I don't know, like a little bit of twang to your voice right now. You're not like, I'm sick. You're like, I'm a cowboy. Ooh. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfuckers. There you go. All right. So, January. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about some of the events that transpired in the first month of 1994. And as far as I remember, 94 was a good year. Probably. We were both seniors at the time, in kindergarten. Pretty sure. Uh, the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers was well into the, its first season, and we'd soon see Tommy return as the Green Ranger, which was arguably the most important event of the year at the time for us. Oh yeah, like fucking Tommy coming back as the Green Ranger, we were teased with it for a little bit, oh, and it was, then it was legit. bam, full cast member. And the world was getting used to the sax-playing, sex-having <laughs> Bill Clinton as President of the United States of America. Yeah, Bill Clinton. So, just a couple of uh, events to sort of set the stage. During the first month of 1994, the North American Free Trade Agreement, also known as NAFTA, is established on January 1st. Bill Clinton, the aforementioned sex-having president, and Russian President Boris Yeltsin signed the Kremlin Accords, which stopped the pre-programmed aiming of nuclear missiles towards each country's targets on the 14th. On the 17th, the 6.5 to 6.7 Northridge earthquake shakes the greater LA area, leaving 57 people dead and more than 8,700 injured. We'll probably have a show dedicated to earthquakes, or at very least natural disasters, of the 90s, but that is not what this show is about. No. And record cold temperatures hit the eastern United States. Negative 36 Fahrenheit or negative 38 Celsius is recorded in New Whiteland, Indiana. New Whiteland. So I guess it's not that cold out right now. It is also, though. It is fucking freezing it's here. pretty frigid. It is. Hold on. I'm going to I'm gonna pull this up on my phone. Live read. In Niagara Falls right now, it is negative 17 degrees Celsius without the wind chill. That's just... Yeah. That's With just the windshield, the... it's like mid-negative 20s, possibly oh, borderline negative 30. It's insane. It's ridiculous. It's unreasonable. And for some reason, a lot of people have decided to flock to Niagara Falls today. Tally and I were discussing, like, why we live here, and she just kept muttering to herself, free healthcare. Oh, like, as opposed to America or... Or just like anywhere warmer. Columbia? Yeah. Yeah, good places. It's cold. But that is not the cold we will be focusing on this week. We're going to be taking a look back at some of the cold, calculated temperatures that can only be found on an ice skating rink. Throughout the 90s, I think figure skating was kind of a huge deal, much bigger than it is now. And something that really highlights how seriously people took this is uh, an event that happened on January 6th, 1994, when uh, figure skater Nancy Kerrigan was clubbed in the thigh by the ex-husband of her rival, Tanya Harding. We're also going to take a look at something completely different, something called the Super Highway Summit, which was held at UCLA to discuss the growing information superhighway. Was this hosted by Al Gore? I can't wait to find out. A term that could only be thought up by the great minds of the 1990s. But first, a word from our not quite real sponsor, but it's trying. It's trying, you know? 
Oh, yeah. And, you know, effort is important. This week, Stuck in the 90s is brought to you by the non-smoking section of a restaurant. Ugh. Because the 90s were a time when physical separation of about a few feet could protect you from secondhand smoke. We do feel like most restaurants must have had pretty good ventilation in place or or something. We both remember the 90s and going out for dinner when, you know, smoking or none was oh, yeah. the first thing that the host or hostess said to you upon entering the restaurant. Oh, yeah, that was question number one. I think that pre uh, preceded like how many a lot of the times. Yeah, I think my biggest preference was for a booth. Ooh, see, my family did not go for booths because my dad was like 100 pounds heavier at the time and booths did not often work. Ah. They do now, though. But I hate so, chairs. Shout out to you, Dad. Killing it. But yeah, like, the need for a booth for me outweighed whether or not I wanted the smoking or non-smoking section. True, I do love booths. Booth, preferably non-smoking, but booth first and foremost. Yeah, so, I get that. you know, thank you to the non-smoking section for making our lives a little bit healthier. You know what was really funny, brief aside? So, there was a short period of time, at least in Ontario, <laughs> where you could have a separate smoking section that had to be entirely closed off and ventilated. Yeah. So, two notable businesses in town, the Bowling Alley as well as the Bingo Hall, installed these sections and then like a year later those were banned yeah and, and the bowling alley that money on it yeah the family who owns cataract bowl lost their fucking minds because they spent like at the time 10 grand on redoing this section of the building in order to meet code and then poof doesn't matter yeah uh, a couple tim hortons did that too oh i do the one in Chippewa, I, yeah I remember. I remember that yeah and yeah, well, you know well, what as much as i am not for smoking at all I feel for at least some of the smaller businesses that had to do it. Like, could they not have had, like, maybe a five to ten year grandfather into that? Fucking would have made them the most popular place in town for some people. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, before we get into our spotlight, should we dip into a little bit of 90s news now? Yes. Yes, let's do that. Connor, do you know what 1993, 1997, and 1999 have in common? I was alive during all of them. I mean, that's true. They're also all prime numbers. Okay. Yeah, so this week, the largest prime number ever was discovered. It's 23,249,425 digits long. Holy shit. Yeah, over 23 million digits long. You can get this number by multiplying 2 to the power of 77,232,917 and then subtracting 1. Hmm. I downloaded a text file of this number. It's... Like, almost 24 megabytes, just in a number. You are one of, like, 10 people who's not a mathematician who downloaded that file. Oh, yeah, probably. I'm, like, the I'm like the only one who downloaded it who has no idea, like, the impact or, or anything that this means. Now, do you think this is the most shoehorned 90s news now? Yeah. I hope so. Without a doubt. Okay, we're going to make this a little more legit. I did a bit more research afterwards. I'm on board. So, the Great Internet Mercine Prime Search. Wait, GIMPs? Gimps. Gimps. Yeah. Okay. The project that discovered uh, this and other obscenely large prime numbers was formed in January 96. Okay. Shoehorning. Getting better. Yeah. By George Waltman to discover uh, new and more record-setting primes in 1997, uh, Scott Kurowski enabled Gimps to automatically (laughs) harness the power of thousands of ordinary computers to search for these, quote, needle-in-a-haystack numbers. Most Gimp members join uh, the search... Join the search for the thrill of possibly discovering a record-setting rare and new historic Mersine Prime. Wow. Those gimps. Really putting in work. Okay, that's this is maybe the weirdest thing 
you have read on this show. And I say that knowing that a lot of weird things have been read on this show. Oh, yeah. I've, I've put some weird shit in here, but... This might be our shoehorniest moment. Oh, yeah. It's, it is. And so I want to try to one-up it somehow. You might, you might get there. But I, I don't know. That's pretty good. I was reading this last night, and I was like, man, this is so cool. I gotta, I gotta talk about it somehow. Fantastic. Okay. So the spotlight. Back to our main story. Like we mentioned before, figure skating was a huge deal in the 90s, and we feel like it was more important or maybe socially relevant then than it was now. Is that because we had Elfa's Stoiko back then? Probably. I think it's just, I don't know, something about just the culture of the decade made us gravitate towards things like this. Maybe it's the fact that there were really four major TV networks for most of the decade, Cable wasn't a huge thing, so you're watching, you know, you're watching and, what's out there. Figure well, skating and, and Lycra was a popular material, and the hair was taller, which is maybe more interesting to look at when figure skating. I don't know, I'm making shit up at this point. I don't know, but like, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of figure skaters that were household names. Like, like you said, Elvis Stoiko, uh, the two people that are mentioned heavily <laughs> in this story, Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan. Oh, I, th- I thought you were just gonna, Kurt Browning, Kurt Browning there you go. Yeah, Michelle Kwan. I feel Christy like Yamaguchi. Are these all '90s figure skaters? Or are you listening to '2000s figure skaters and nullifying our point? I don't think there are '2000s figure skaters. Like, <laughs> for okay, well. do you remember a couple Winter Olympics ago? There was like a a couple figure skater that kind of kind of rose up a little bit in Canada. I don't remember what their names are. Oh shit! I totally. If I saw them on a multiple choice, I could pick them out. Back to the point, though. It's kind of strange to think about. A lot of the names that we saw while looking this up were. Family household names back then, but it's kind of hard coming up with a current figure skater off the top of your head. Yeah, like I said, you can't come up like you don't know the name. Well, of those, there's that couple. There's that Russian guy with the weird hair. It's a Russian guy with the weird hair. Yeah, there's always one of those in figure skating. Yeah. So we'll talk about this a little bit, or at least you know as much as we can. So here, let's Nancy Kerrigan. Is that who we're diving into first? Nancy Kerrigan, former American figure skater, uh, won bronze medals at the '91 World Championship, '92 Winter Olympics, silvers at the '92 World Championship, and '94 Winter Olympics, and she was the '93 U.S. National Figure Skating Champion. So I mean, there's some pedigree here, right? Oh yeah, she was a good figure skater and that's one of the reasons why this attack happened so on january 6 1994 at the u.s figure skating championships in detroit interesting an incident caused kerrigan to gain international fame far beyond the skating world as she was walking through a corridor at kobo arena uh, immediately after a practice session kerrigan was clubbed on the lower left thigh with a police baton by an assailant who was later identified and apprehended as Shane Stant. The assault was planned by Tanya Harding, a rival figure skater's ex-husband, Jeff Gillooly, and a co-conspirator, Sean Eckert. Holy fuck. So the aftermath uh, of the attack was recorded on a TV camera and broadcast worldwide. Um, The initial footage shows attendants helping Kerrigan as she grabbed at her knee, wailing, why, why, why? Jesus Christ. Um, Kerrigan's also being uh, seen being carried away by her father. Although her injury did force her to withdraw from the U.S. championship, her fellow skaters agreed that she merited one of two spots on the Olympic team. The U.S. FSA, U.S. Figure Skating association authority maybe probably association authority is a a very american word it super is regardless they chose to name her to the olympic team over second place finisher michelle kwan another household name at the time uh but she was sent to Lillehammer regardless as an alternate in the event that harding was removed from the team 
Yeah, so Kerrigan recovered quickly from her leg injury and resumed intensive training. She practiced doing back-to-back double runs through her programs until she felt completely confident. Um, The fame she acquired from the attack led to further opportunities, and it was reported that she had already signed endorsement contracts for $9.5 million before the Olympics even began. I would allow someone to club me in the leg for $0.5 million, let alone the nine. Oh yeah, especially like something that you recovered from in a few weeks. Like not not to say that this is okay, but okay, so I want 9.5, I want $500,000. Spoiler alert, if you're not up on your history and do plan on seeing the upcoming movie I, Tonya, which is about this situation, maybe skip forward you know, a minute. Uh, maybe we should a have minute. said this like... Yeah, we should have, but... At the uh, beginning that's of the okay. podcast. So Harding uh, denied any involvement in the planning of the attack, but pled guilty to conspiring to hinder the prosecution. She received three years probation, was ordered to perform 500 hours of community service, and had to pay a $100,000 fine. In late 2005, Kerrigan expressed objections uh, to Shane Stant's wishes to have the attack removed from his record so he could join the Navy amazing. SEALs, who do not allow anyone with a felony conviction to join. Kerrigan stated in a letter that to allow Stant to have the attack removed from his record would not only be an insult to her, but it would send the message that a crime like that can ultimately be swept under the rug. Stant's request had already been denied by a judge, saying that it is against the law to expunge an assault conviction. Furthermore, one must be aged 28 or younger to join, even with no felony convictions, and Stant was 34 when he tried to have that attack removed from his record. So fuck that guy. Yeah. So a little more background information on the attack. On February 1st, 1994, Galuli accepted a plea offer in exchange for his testimony against Harding, Galuli, so himself, Stant, and Eckert, and a getaway car driver, Derek Smith. They all served time in prison for the attack. Eckert was sentenced to 18 months in prison for racketeering, uh, but was released four months early in September 95. So Harding avoided further prosecution and possible uh, jail sentence by pleading guilty on March 16th to conspiring to hinder prosecution of the attackers. She received three years probation, 500 hours of community service, and a $160,000 fine. Whew, yeah. As part of the plea bargain, she was forced to withdraw from the 94 World Skating Championships and also resigned from the United States... United Skates. Man, why isn't that Why is it not called the United Skates something or other? Yeah, United States Figure Skating Association. Man, United Skates. United Skates, that's so good. You've done it. Anyway, on June 30th of that year, after conducting its own investigation, the U.S. FSA, I guess it is Figure Skating Association, stripped her of her 94 U.S. Championship title and banned her from life from participating in UFSS. U-S-F-S-A. Ooh. United Skates is just way better. It's so much better. That's what we're going to be referring to it for the rest of the podcast. Yeah. United Skates of America. Yeah. The United Skates banned her from participating in United Skates run events, either mm. as a skater or a coach. The United Skates concluded that she knew about the attack before it happened and displayed a clear disregard for fairness, good sportsmanship, and ethical behavior. Yeah, I think, more... I think that's about the end of the story. Yeah. Uh, I mean... Okay, one more bit. This is probably going to be... I would imagine this would be an I, Tanya. So if you're planning on watching the movie, maybe skip over in 30 seconds or so. This whole episode is a spoiler. But I mean, we it's a, it's a it's history a thing. It's a historical event. It's like going into the Titanic and not knowing that it's going to sink. Being like, oh, fuck, I really hope they steer clear of that iceberg. Dude, what do you mean Queen Elizabeth lived through the Cold War? I'm not... How? What, what part do they get to in the crown? <laughs> 
anyway, like uh, Tanya Harding didn't have a lot of great stuff afterwards. No. She uh, went into foxy boxing. As one does. So uh, that's really that's really the end of that. Yeah. I kind of want to watch I, Tanya after reading about this, doing the research about I this. I wanted to watch the movie anyway. It looks great. Oh, yeah. It's it's probably going to be really awesome. I think it received really good reviews when it was screened at TIFF. And we can now confirm that Margot Robbie would have been 90s hot. Yeah. So that's that's, that's a big what, deal. That's her whole deal, pretty much. Besides Harley Quinn, it's she plays 90s hot. Yeah. She was uh, the woman in The Wolf of Wall Street, which was taking place, I think, in the Wasn't, 90s. I thought that Might was... Have been, oh, it was the 80s. I think it was the 80s. 80s yeah. hot. So she was 80s hot. Now we know she's 90s hot. She's retro hot. hot. Yeah. But how she does she... Hot? How does she look in mod robes? Margo, we need to know. Okay, let's swing it back because I know, I know you, podcast listeners, and I know that as soon as we said Super Highway Summit, you ignored everything that came after until we got back to however we're about to wind Al Gore into this episode. Yeah. The Super Highway Summit was held at the University of California, Los Angeles's Royce Hall on the 11th of January, 1994, Year of Our Lord. It was the first public conference bringing together all of the major industry, government, and academic leaders in the field, and also began the national dialogue about the information superhighway and its implications. Amazing. This is so good. The conference was organized by Richard Frank of the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences and Jeffrey Cole and Joffrey Cohen, the the former co-directors of UCLA's Center for Communication Policy. It was introduced by former UCLA Chancellor Andrea L. Rich, and its keynote speaker was Vice President Al Gore, creator of the internet. As Tim Berners-Lee begrudgingly admits every day. Tim Berners-Lee is the guy who actually invented the internet. So there were 30 leaders in the area of communications presiding over the event, which had an attendance of over 1,800 people, which isn't that many. <laughs> That's really not, yeah. It was broadcast live on C-SPAN. Wow, E-Entertainment. That's a opposite That's ends of the spectrum. very weird. Yeah. And on the UCLA campus, that makes sense. Uh, a couple of the notable participants was uh, Michael Eisner, the then chair and uh, CEO of Walt Disney, uh, Al Gore, who was the keynote speaker. Yep. Robert Iger, who is, I think, now the Disney CEO, then president of uh, ABC. We also discussed lots him. Of, lots of Disney people. Yeah, oh, we... Rupert Murdoch was there. Yep. Yeah. Um, neat. Oh, man. Was this the most boring, interesting event of all time? I think this is amazing. So Al Gore outlined the Clinton administration's proposals to reform communication marketplaces and challenged the audience to provide links from the so-called information superhighway to every classroom, library, hospital, and clinic in the country by the year 2000. We did it, Al! One really uh, fucked up thing is during the talk, a character called Ernestine, a fictional telephone operator created by Lily Tomlin, uh, made a surprise appearance. Creepy. Lily Tomlin showed up. Yep. She complained about the, quote, confusing and rapid transformation of communication technology, which the vice president uh, laughingly assured Ernestine that the new technology would be simple to understand and available to all Americans. I imagine that being as painful as it was hokey. This just sounds like an amazing conference overall and just, I don't know, something to behold. It must have been the worst. I think it was- Just the worst. How cool would it have been? Super cool, but also the worst. I would love if Al Gore just like dual wielded his like expertise and was like, global warming, the internet. 
like just like a double edge oh, yeah. Darth Maul lightsaber, bringing them up at every turn, just being like, if we introduce more in- internet infrastructure around the world, we can combat climate change. Okay. How would your opinion on Al Gore change if he did a two and a half hour mockumentary on Man Bear Pig? And, and it off. just it just comes out on Netflix one day, Man Bear Pig, you open it, and it is an honest to goodness video of Al Gore discussing Man Bear Pig, the etymology, the history, the background, and like potential sightings, like he interviews people. Well, that would be incredible. That'd be the best. Al Gore, I know you're listening. You're not, but maybe, maybe you are. You're boring enough that you might. <laughs> I think he he's <laughs> he spiced up his image towards the end of the 90s. Well, yeah. A little yeah. bit. Well, also, we swear a little, so maybe he would find us spicy. Maybe. Al Gore. Man bear peg. I need it. It could be a thing. It could be a thing. This cold, this cold January night. Anyway, I think that's about that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, good stuff. So, you know. Find us online. Yeah. As always, you can find us online at stuckinthe90spodcast.com. We're on Twitter at sit90s. We're on Instagram and on Facebook at stuckinthe90spodcast. I've been posting on Instagram lately. Yeah, some good stuff. Some good shit. Um, Yeah. That's that's about the end of that. Oh, if you want to be a town dollar sponsor, that's the thing we're still doing. If I can get the whole sentence out, uh, drop us a line at stuck in the nineties podcast at gmail.com and we'll we will get, we'll we get will. several sentences out for you. Oh yeah, we'll paragraphs plug, even. Yeah, maybe. We'll plug your wares, no yeah. doubt. Yeah, it'll be it'll be a good time. Just just hit us up or whatever. Also, know. spoiler alert. This episode we talk about Tonya Harding. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. That's a that's a kind of '90s clubbing that uh, I wouldn't think exists today. Well, I mean, police batons. I don't know where we're going with this. Anyway, uh, we'll catch you next week. I don't know what we're gonna talk about. Maybe bubble tape. Who knows? Oh, bubble tape. Yeah. Uh, until then, we will catch you on the flip side, dude meisters. Stuck in the '90s. The podcast is, is now, now over. over. That fizzled out towards the end. Yeah, it did. I'll, I'll cut it to make sense. Okay.